humans! It's me, Ellie Krug on Ellie 2.0 Radio, and I am talking to you live from the bunker in Eden Prairie, Minnesota. How are you? I am thrilled to be here. Um, it has been a long uh, d- uh, duration since I talked to you last, um, in part because I've had some, uh, some emergencies in my family that have kept me from coming in. Um, but I'm here live, here today, live on May 6th, and I am thrilled, and I would love to have you call me because I love speaking to my listeners. So the number is 952-946-6205. We have a great show. I'm going to talk to you a little bit about, um, oh, I don't know, uh, the Bud Light controversy involving uh, Dylan Mulaney, Mulvaney. Um, a little bit about uh, the the E. Jean Carroll uh, trial and uh, a bunch of other uh, some other things, but let me let me begin. Well, and remember, I need to tell you this. Okay, now remember, regular listeners, you know this already, but for those new listeners coming on board, remember this show is about idealism and idealists, people working to make a positive difference in the world. I happen to be one of those humans attempting to do that. And I would say with somewhat of a mixed bag (laughs) at being able to do it. But um, I want to talk about uh, demographics in Minnesota and a little bit about um, what I'm finding. So this week... I had the pleasure, and I I mean that, the pleasure of spending from noon until, oh, I don't know, 8 o'clock at night in Albert Lee, Minnesota. Population, 18,000 or so folks. Um, Albert Lee, for those who are not familiar uh, with Minnesota or, or at least are geographically challenged like I am, is on uh, I-35, uh, literally uh, five miles from the Iowa border. So it's in central southern Iowa. It's this nice small town. And they asked me to come down and uh, do a couple of gray area thinking trainings and to do what I call a round table, which is to meet with uh, folks to talk about dem- uh, uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion in the community. Now, to give you some background, last year... Um, City of Albert Lee hosted, I believe it was its first um, first pride celebration. And part of that celebration involved um, a drag show uh, that that they put on. Um, and i'm t- I'm told that that the the number of people who came to this pride event that came to Pride last year exceeded, the numbers of people who'd ever gone to anything else ever put on by the Visitors and Tourist Bureau, um, which is the entity that brought me down to uh, Albert Lee. And, but apparently, because it was a drag, there was a drag show at Pride, um, apparently there was some significant pushback. Not by a whole lot of people. Now, remember, the vast majority of people are good with other people. It's just a very, very vocal minority that create problems, you know, for people pushing for change, that create problems for us idealists. Um, But they had some vocal 
uh, folks in Alberley, and and I think that it you know it made people very uh, gun shy about uh, doing it again. But they're going to do Pride again. They're going to do Pride again next month, and I think they're going to do a drag show again. Uh, but you know the 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 town has this kind of um, rough spot as it relates to LGBTQ plus people. So at any rate, they bring me down and I spent uh, an hour and a half over the lunch hour talking to, um, doing a round table and talking to religious, uh, 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 civic leaders. So there were two religious leaders, one of them from one of the largest churches in town. We had four city council members. We had a representative from the schools and we had uh, some folks from other entities but absent at this roundtable where I wanted to talk about the future of Albert Lee, the lifeblood of Albert Lee, which is its people, there was no one from the uh, Chamber of Commerce um, or anyone from the largest uh, you know, employers in Albert Lee. And also absent from this roundtable was anybody, at least visibly Hispanic, um, or Corinne. Um, they have apparently um, uh, in the... Albert, greater Albert Lee metropolitan area, there's a large contingent of Corinne folks. Um, you know, and as it turns out, uh, you know, I went, and did, I went and did some research beforehand, and Albert Lee, um, population, as I said, 18,000, uh, 15% of the community is, uh, identifies as Hispanic, another 4% identifies as Asian, and, and I learned at the roundtable that um, 43% of the students in the schools in Albert Lee, 43% in the lower grades, the elementary grades, 43% are either Hispanic or Karen. So think about that. I mean, this is, you know, formerly Lily White, Minnesota, and uh, nearly half of the elementary school students in this school, nearly half, are not white. Think about that. I'll come back to that. Um, Faribault, which is up the road by about 40, oh, 50 miles or so, population 25,000, just right up I-35, uh, population 25,000. I, I, I couldn't find the most recent stat, but a 2018 story uh, s- said that Somali children made up 53% of the school students in Faribault. More than half in 2018. I'm sure that number is higher now. And then let's go over to Worthington, another southern, now uh, west, western southern Minnesota town of 13,500. In Worthington, um, only 62% of the town is white. Uh, 13% of it is Hispanic. 7% is black. And nearly 10% is Asian. So think uh, again. Think about that. Think about how the landscape is changing in, uh, in greater Minnesota. You know, I mean, usually when we talk about Minnesota, the focus is on the Twin Cities where, of course, uh, you know, we've got a lot of people, three million, more than three million out of a total state of five point something million people living in the Twin Cities. But as I explained during the round table in Albert Lee, um, that if, if cities in greater Minnesota want to survive, if they want to s- survive and thrive, they need to change the way 
they're doing things. They need to become far more inclusive. And remember, inclusivity is the extent to which humans feel as if they matter. Um, they need to, you know, they need to be far more inclusive than what, what they are. For, for example, you know, white people need to cede some power and bring to the table, bring for representative purposes and for per, not just performative, but just for, I mean, to, for real contribution, bring people from uh, marginalized groups to the table and give them a voice, give them some power. Um, otherwise, uh, what happens is, is that people leave. And this also includes, you know, young white kids. I mean, they, they, many of them uh, want to be able to work in diverse environments. Many of them value diversity. I mean, for them, having friends of different skin colors or different religious backgrounds is like no big deal. It's the parents but the parents happen to be the ones in power. They're the ones where they're uncomfortable. That would be the right phrase, everyone. They're uncomfortable with having um, folks at the table who don't look like them. And as I explained in Albert Lee, that mentality's got to change. And because if you don't, people are going to leave and you're not going to have the workforce or the tax base. Those are two things, workforce and tax base that you need in order to have a thriving community. Um, you know, and, and it's just, <laughs> uh, uh, and so while I was down in Albert Lee, I um, did two gray area thinking trainings. So I met with these folks over the lunch hour, you know, some of the power people in town, but not all of them, uh, over the lunch hour to talk about you know, DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion topics and things. And then um, I did a gray area thinking, my signature human inclusivity talk. I did it for mainly city employees. I had people from the streets department, from the fire department, from the police department, people with uniforms, people with guns, people, you know, people from the administration in the city, people, I had the librarians there. And, you know, um, I think that it was, um, a mandatory training for some folks. And uh, you, I can always tell when the trainings are mandatory because uh, we get far, I get far less engagement from people, you know, and I try to appeal to them and, and explain to them, you know, about um, the value of being inclusive to all people. But I'll tell you, we, we lost probably about 30% of the room between the beginning of that talk and the end. Um, and me as a trainer, I can't take that personally. It's just, you know, I mean, part of it, part of the group left because there was a fire call and the fire, fire folks had to run out, but other people, uh, just left. But then we did gray area thinking for the community, um, on the evening of Wednesday night, you know, and we had in the community, we had about, we had, nope, not about, we had 14 people, not a large crowd, but you know what? They were very engaged. They were very willing to um, consider all the ideas that I put out there. And it was, it was quite rewarding for me to um, have those people there and to do that training. So um, the world is changing, everyone. As much as, as, much as you, we, we're hearing on national media all of the pushback against people who are different or other compared to 
Uh, white color people, remember I refer to white people as white color, C-O-L-O-R, because the vast majority of people don't believe that uh, white people believe that their skin color is a color, actually. Um, you know, uh, uh, white people are pushing back, at least that's the way it looks on national news. But I'm just telling you, out in greater Minnesota, there's this revolution happening. There is. It's a good thing. It's a really, really good thing. Because our, our state and our country, we, we need folks, okay? From the most practical standpoint, we need people to, you know, be in the factories making the widgets or going to the nursing homes to care for, for the aged or, or to have personal care attendants come into your home so you don't have to go to the nursing home, okay? We need people. and We don't have enough people who are native to Minnesota, which, which if you hear what I'm saying, are mainly white-colored people, but not entirely. And so we need more people. And it's happening, and I think it's a wonderful, wonderful thing. So uh, let me know what you think. Hey, if you're hearing this from greater Minnesota, you know, I'd love to hear what you have to say about that. Give me a call at 952-946-6205. And I'm willing to talk to you about anything. This is kind of an a la carte show. Um, I've got some other items on the plate here, but I'm absolutely happy to talk with you about anything. So give me a call, 952-946-6205. All right, we're going to take a break. And when we come back from the break, I don't know what I'm going to talk to you about. I'll figure it out between now and then. All right, this is Ellie Krug on Ellie 2.0 Radio. If you like what you hear, visit my website at elliekrug.com. Sign up for, for my newsletter, The Ripple. All right, we'll be back in a minute. We're back. LA 2.0 Radio. How are you all? Are you having a good Saturday morning? Um, here in Minnesota, if you're not in Minnesota, um, here in Minnesota, it's rainy and dreary, but I am pleased to report that it's at least somewhere close to 60 degrees. So, you know, I mean, this time uh, last month, we had feet of snow on the ground. And so, uh, you know, <laughs> we're slowly progressing, of course. Um, you know, we're going to have, I, I don't even want to talk about October when we could have snow again. All right. Well, listen, all right. Um, I want to move on and I want to talk a little bit about what's going on uh, with uh, uh, Dylan Mulvaney and the Bud Light controversy. So, you know what? I have not weighed in on this publicly anywhere. So here you're getting it for the very first time from yours truly, Ellie Krug, um, trans woman extraordinaire. No. Um, so Dylan, for those who do not know, Dylan Mulvaney is 26 years old. She is a transgender woman. And for the past year, um, she, beginning every day, okay, 365 days in a row, she documented her journey in transitioning from male to female. Um, and, and I will, you know, I will tell you, I mean, in the transgender community, there's this concept of, of passing, which means uh, to pass um, 
as a trans person means no one would ever guess that you were assigned a different gender at birth. Okay, now, Ellie Krug, yours truly here. It, uh, you know, I'm uh, at this point about five foot eight uh, on a good, you know, depending on the store, a size four. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, still have still have the hair. And, you know, so if I don't open my mouth, I pass for female. Yeah. I mean, I don't I don't have people coming up to me and just saying, you know, you're a dude. Um but as soon as I open my mouth, you're, you know, you're hearing it right now. <laughs> um, I, you know, my ability to pass as female is dramatically uh, um, challenged. Although, you know, of course, the standing joke is there are half a dozen older women in Bemidji that just believe I smoke five packs of cigarettes a day for 25 years and have no idea. But the vast majority, when they meet me, they know something is up, Okay. I'm, tell, I'm giving you that background about passing in the transgender community because Dylan Mulvaney, um, just in a year of you know transitioning genders, passes. She's got a great voice. She certainly looks it. She's got, I don't know, as, as much curves as she has just a, you know, it's a compact body. And so, you know, in, in, in regard to all of that, I'm kind of jealous, okay, but... But she's also a TikTok, what's called an influencer. And this is why she's on the radar. She has something like 10 million followers on TikTok. I mean, it's just a ginormous amount of followers. I mean, Ellie Krug, A, I'm not on TikTok. And I've got, um, I think, about 1,300 people that follow me on Twitter. Okay, so just to give you some idea. Of course, I have this radio show and... And uh, Patrick, my producer, and I both know that this goes out to all stretches of the world. So who knows how many followers I have on LA 2.0 Radio. At any rate, Dylan Mulvaney um, became this influencer, and she's got a number of different. She's got cosmetic companies and other, you know, other brands that want her to kind of tout, you know, tout their brands, their products, you know, on her TikTok view uh, videos and and other things and they're happy to pay her for this and and trust me I'm sure she's making a pretty penny so good for her to you know be able to to monetize transitioning genders um and on the one year anniversary of her transitioning now this is where this all came about Bud Light which had wanted her to be an influencer for them sent her some special Bud Light cans with her image on the cans. And so there was a a video, a TikTok video of her holding up a Bud Light can with her image on it and, you know, talking about Bud Light and how much she likes Bud Light. She is uh, of legal age. And with what's going on in America right now, okay, that just that one TikTok and that one image on a Bud Light can sparked a firestorm. I mean, we are talking massive, massive backlash against Bud Light. I mean, Kid Rock, who I barely know who Kid Rock is, but Kid Rock decided that he'd uh, take a gun, you know, he'd pull out his rifle and shoot four four cases of Bud Light to show everybody how much he hates them. There have been other conservative celebrities who have done similar things about destroying Bud Light. Um, 
and you know, and 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 this so I mean, there's been just a massive social media backlash. I saw this week a photo um, at Fenway Park, go Sox, um, with no one, <laughs> no one standing at the Bud Light beer stand, um, but all but, but all the other surrounding stands had plenty of people waiting in line to get beer. Now, um, you know, this is. This is a classic story about how something thought to be relatively innocent and well-intentioned, okay, just comes back to bite you. And, and in this case, it is coming back to bite Anheuser-Busch, which, which uh, brews Bud Light, which brews and sells Bud Light. And at first, uh, the CEO, his name is Michael Dukeris, D-O-U-K-E-R-I-S, Michael Dukeris, at first, they thought what they would do is put out a video showing the Clydesdales, you know, hoofing through America to patriotic sounds and, and, the, and the idea that, you know, Bud and Bud Light represents, you know, the values of greater America. Um, that didn't work. It did not slow down the, the uh, backlash. And so on Thursday, just a couple of days ago, Dukaris, um distanced Anheuser-Busch from a Dylan Mulvaney um, in an investor call, essentially saying that it, that what they were doing with Dylan wasn't a campaign of any kind and essentially essentially doing what a lot of people do with transgender people is trying to erase the whole thing. Um, now, <laughs> and what that has done now is that has sparked a different backlash. <laughs> I mean... You know, Anheuser-Busch isn't going to win on this in any way because now the current backlash after Anheuser-Busch tries to placate the social conservatives, you know, um, now the backlash is by the LGBTQ plus community. Um, there was a story this morning about, uh, about LGBTQ plus bars in Chicago now refusing to serve any Anheuser-Busch products. Uh, because of uh, because of now because of Anheuser Busch wouldn't stand by Dylan Mulvaney, <laughs> you know, and um, uh, and and so where do I stand on this? How do I feel about this? Well, first off, my hat is off to Dylan Mulvaney, okay, for being, you know, pretty smart, you know, monetize your gender transition and see what it'll get you. So my hat is off for her to be a fairly, you know, fairly entrepreneurial and, uh, you know, a pretty, pretty astute. Um, do I like her? Not really. <laughs> okay. I, I'm not like a big fan of her. I think she's kind of silly, frankly. Um, and uh, I think that to a certain degree, she, um, she makes transitioning genders look a lot simpler than what it really is. Um, but... I will tell you this. I, I, you know, I still remember 2016, so seven years ago, when North Carolina passed HB2, which was, which pales in comparison to most of what's going on with transgender, against transgender people in America right now. But HB2 was a bill in North Carolina to essentially say that trans people couldn't use bathrooms other than those that would align with the gender they were assigned at birth, not the gender that they identify with. So in other words, Ellie Krug in North Carolina would have to use, notwithstanding how feminine I look, but I would have to use the male restroom and not the female restroom, okay? And there was, there was this outcry 
I mean, we are talking massive, massive outcry against HB2 across America. We had, there were at least two companies that 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 public that were going to bring thousands of jobs to North Carolina. They just said we're not going to North Carolina anymore. I th- they moved the NCA Final Four or the you know or the Sweet Sixteen or whatever it was out of you know out of wherever it was going to be in in um, in uh, North Carolina. You had performers canceling concerts because of North Carolina being so closed minded. Yeah, I mean you had this enormous, enormous backlash. And, and much of that was by private businesses. Much of that was by brands, okay? And they said, we're not going to stand for this anymore. We're just not going to stand for it. And uh, ultimately, HB2 was repealed. Um, and, you know, and, and I mean, it was, it was, it was wonderful. I mean, and this was really 2016, the first time that the conservatives really started teeing it up against transgender people. And, and it was shut down, okay? And I, was, I felt great as a trans person. We finally got some support, business communities behind us, et cetera, et cetera, okay? Fast forward to 2023. There are now, I, I think... The last I heard, 479 anti-LGBTQ bills introduced in state houses across the country. Um, uh, the majority of those were anti-trans, anti-non-binary human bills. If I read it right, okay, there are 18, 18 states now that have passed bills, that have passed laws, okay, preventing transgender children and and youth up to age 18, and in, and in Alabama, I think it's 26, or Oklahoma, I don't know, one of those states, um, preventing them from getting gender-affirming care, like hormones, puberty blockers, to keep transgender girls from having the voice that you're listening to right now, because that's what a puberty blocker does, would prevent this voice from coming, coming on for trans kids. And then there are another 22 states that have enacted laws preventing trans kids, trans humans, from kindergarten all the way through senior year college university, um, uh, state university, senior year, from participating in sports. Okay, so, so all of that outcry that happened in 2016, that outcry is gone. People just, I mean, the business, commun- and the business community has abandoned transgender people. And yes, this, you know, this... Bud Light thing was really wonderful. Oh, by the way, the two executives at um, Anheuser-Busch that, you know, proved sending, you know, creating the images of Dylan Mulvaney on the cans and sending them to her and, 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 and hiring her as an influence, they're gone. <laughs> and, and what this Bud Light thing will prove to every other business in America, what it will prove is, um, transgender people, my community, it is persona non grata. It is too hot to handle. It is, you, you don't, we're never going to, we're not going to support transgender people publicly ever again. I mean, think about that. You know, um, I gave a talk last week uh, to my Rotary Club. Well, it would be the week ago, week ago Wednesday. Um, 
And uh, it was about how transgender people are being marginalized across America. And you know what? I, to prepare for that talk, um, I went and I Googled. I, I Googled um, um, uh, important milestones toward the Holocaust, Germany, 1930-1941. And I mean, literally, I got, you know, we went back, you know, that that timeline goes back to like 1930 and then 31. And, and the way that, and, and please understand, I'm not, I mean, the Holocaust, there's no comparison. I, I, I want to make sure that people understand that. But the idea of targeting a small group and using them as the scapegoat for what is wrong with your country, using them as the focus of hatred, those similarities exist. And one of the, you know, one of the ways that the Nazis you know, were able to get the general population, good Germans as we would call them, okay, one of the ways they got good Germans on board was to start to, to prevent transgender, or excuse me, prevent uh, Jewish people from owning property, from being able to, to participate in just regular German life, to, to start holding them out, creating all the barriers for German Jews um, to be able to participate, be, be citizens of Germany. I mean, at one point they revoked their citizenship. The Nazis did. And so part of that was the business community, okay? And so same thing happening here. The business community is abandoning my community, my transgender community, and, um, and it hurts but it does not portell well for the future. Okay, I would love to hear from you. And if you have a thought about this Dylan Mulvaney, please uh, give me a call at 952-9466205. We're going to take a break. When we come back, I'm going to give you what I think is kind of a positive story. And, uh, you know, hey, follow me on Twitter. It's at Ellie Krug. I'll be back in a second. Thank you. LD 2.0 Radio. I, you know, I love um, being back live with you. I, I enjoy being live. Um, uh, it involves a, a little less prep than usual. Um, I have my, don't worry, I have my show notes here in front of me. Please, I am a professional. Um, but uh, I just like being able to be able to speak to you contemporaneously with things that are going on. Um, and I'm going to get to the E. Jean Carroll trial in a second. But before I do that, I, I do want, you know, I want to make sure that we have some positivity out of this show. Well, I don't know. I think the first thing I talked about, about what's going on in greater Minnesota is positive. But so here's the story, Dateline, Cedar Falls, Iowa. Apparently, because June is Pride Month for many, many places. Okay, and that's because it coincides with when the the Stonewall riots occurred. Um, they occurred beginning on June twenty eighth, nineteen sixty nine, and so many places have pride during June to commemorate the riots. And the 
the beginning of the modern gay rights era, what uh, Stonewall did. Uh, so Dateline, Cedar Falls, Iowa, um, the local, uh, the city's uh, Human Rights Commission uh, approaches the city council in, C in Cedar Falls. Cedar Falls population, probably 60,000 people, something like that. It's next to Waterloo. Um, approaches the Cedar Falls uh, city council and says, we'd, we'd like the council to, uh, you know, declare June um, Pride Month for the city of Cedar Falls. And uh, as most proclamations are signed by the mayor, you know, we'd like to have the mayor sign this. The mayor, a man named Rob Green, um, who was newly elected, I would add, um, refused. He said that his uh, Christian beliefs, his Christian values, uh, prevented him from signing uh, the proclamation about Pride Month. Uh, he added, though, that it would be okay if a city council member um, signed the proclamation. He would not have any problem with that. Well, let me just tell you, okay, um, you know, in the segment right before this, I talked about backlash. Well, let me just tell you, uh, public backlash over the mayor's refusal to sign the proclamation about June being Pride Month in Cedar Falls, the public backlash was enormous. Um, there was a city council meeting, apparently 30 people spoke. No one was in favor of the mayor not signing the proclamation, I mean, it was, you know, how, Mayor, how can you put your religious beliefs ahead of what your, are your civic duties? And we need to have the community to be opening and welcoming. Um, and, and uh, you know, it, it, it was an, it's an eight-member uh, city council, and at least one of those city council members called on the mayor to resign as a consequence of his refusal uh, to, sign, uh, to sign the proclamation about about it being Pride Month um, in June. And uh, there were also a number of citizens who called on the mayor to resign as well. And I, you know, I mean, holy cow. Um, <laughs> but you know what? The mayor changed his mind. He did. And uh, the mayor um, eventually signaled that he would sign the proclamation Indicated that he's kind of learning as he goes as mayor and trying, you know, he still believes that his religious beliefs are incredibly important, okay? But, um, but you know, he gave in to public pressure, thank goodness, okay? But, you know, I mean, it's, pro what you know, the proclamation about Pride Month essentially is saying that we recognize there are LGBTQ people in our community and we value them. We think they matter. That, that's really all that a pride proclamation is. Now, that's all that any kind of a proclamation is. Um, and, you know, I mean, uh, of course, uh, we will, you know, we'll, we're going to see more of this stuff, more things based on religion, more things that are going to be, you know, I don't know if I can do this, even though I was elected, because, but because of my religious values. Um, you know, and I mean, my question is, that, is that the kind of country we want? <laughs> it, it sure seems like it's the kind of country we're getting in parts of our country. I mean, at this point, once you get to Virginia, uh, if you're heading south on, uh, 
you know, on I-95 or whatever the uh, interstate is uh, heading, if, if you head south, uh, the tenor of the country changes. In a whole, I mean, it changes as it relates to LGBTQ rights. It changes as it relates to women, uh, the autonomy, you know, the, the bodily autonomy of women. It changes as it relates to education, um, you know, in terms of what, what's going to be taught or not. It changes in terms of voting. <laughs> you got states... North of Virginia are like, hey, we want everybody to vote. We're going to make it simpler for you. And here, by the way, you know, when you get your driver's license, now you're registered to vote, all the kind of stuff. And down south, they're like, you know. So we're going to see more of this, of course. And I think that for me, for my community, not to get back on the transgender bandwagon here, but the world is getting smaller it is. I, I, did, I, I should have mentioned um, in the last segment, you know, Florida has now passed a law that I have to use the men's restroom. Me, Ellie Krug, if I go to Florida. By the way, I am not, I am like boycotting Florida. I'm not going to Florida, as far as I'm concerned, ever going to Florida ever again until they change their darn laws. But at any rate, okay, well, I thought that this story, at least out of Cedar Falls, would give you maybe some comfort, okay? That, you know, even somebody who was, you know, fundamentally stuck to religious beliefs could be at least pushed uh, to do the right thing. All right, we're going to take one more break. And when we come back, um, I'm going to talk about the E. Jean Carroll case, me, Ellie Krug, civil trial lawyer. You know, this is kind of up my alley. So when we come back, I'll talk about that. One last chance for you to call in, 952-946-6205. Thanks. Ellie 2.0 Radio, how are you? <laughs> okay, uh, Eugene Carroll's trial in New York City. Um, Monday, closing arguments. And the trial has been something else. So remember, uh, it, there are two, uh, two claims here. One about sexual assault, about Eugene Carroll claiming that Donald Trump raped her in a department store in New York City. Um, and a defamation claim because uh, she wrote about it and then Donald Trump said that she was a liar. And so she's, you know, and, and again, this is consistent with what happens with many um, survivors of, of sexual assault. Um, not only do they survive, the have to endure the trauma of the assault, but also the uh, damage to reputation afterward. So it's been a brilliant trial by... Eugene Carroll's lawyers, um, uh, they have put on, so for me as a civil trial lawyer in the past, 100 trials to my credit, um, I would say they put on a brilliant case. You know, they put her on the stand. She was well prepared. She was well prepared for the cross-examination by Joe Tacopina, um, who, by the way, just hammered her, hammered her about not screaming. 
And again, she went through, you know, trauma again, okay? But just, I mean, that's not the way that he should have dealt with her, okay? Um, uh, on Friday, we had excerpts of uh, Donald Trump's video and deposition, which had been played to the audience, which for the plaintiff, for E. Jean Carroll, is, is wonderful because you get to show the video and there's no redirect examination by Trump's lawyers. I mean, Trump's lawyers didn't ask him any questions at his deposition. And so there's no way to rehabilitate some of the, that's the phrase, rehabilitate, that's the fix. It's, in other words, fix some of the stupid statements that Donald Trump made in the deposition, okay? <clears throat> and the, the, the one most current uh, issue right at the moment uh, for this trial is that on Friday, Donald Trump was in Scotland breaking ground for a new uh, golf course, in which, by the way, may be fueled by the Saudis, which may in turn lead to Donald Trump hiding classified documents. That that threat is coming up, uh, but I'm not going to get into it today. But but in, in, in Scotland, Trump said this, quote, I have to go back for a woman that made false accusations about me, and I have a judge who is extremely hostile. And I'm going to go back and I'm going to confront this, unquote. So Trump is on the record. And Takapina, he rested his case without calling any witnesses on Friday. So E. Jean Carroll's lawyers got done with their evidence. They rested their case on Friday. The judge said, Mr. Takapina, you may proceed. And Takapina says, I have no witnesses to present, Your Honor. I'm going to um, rest. But then Trump's statement came up and the judge has given Trump until uh, 5 o'clock tomorrow, Sunday, okay, 5 p.m. evening, um, to confirm whether he's going to come into court and testify. Um, I'm here to tell you, <laughs> I don't think Donald Trump is even that, even Donald Trump is that stupid, okay? Because that would be the worst thing that he can do. And I'm going to call it right now, all right? I'm going to call it. I think that jury, so one of the things that civil trial juries, you know, lawyers do is figure out how long are they going to be out and how is it going to go. I'm going to call it. This jury is going to be out no longer than six hours, and they're going to come back in favor of E. Jean Carroll resoundingly. And I think they're going to hit Donald Trump with millions of dollars worth of damages. So there you go. You heard Ellie Krug say that on the air in Minnesota. All right, I need to do a big thanks uh, to my producer, Patrick, who's done a great job and today didn't have to do a single ounce of math. And to you, my audience, I'm thrilled that you are here. Please talk about this show. Thank you for tuning in. And uh, I'll be back next week. Take care. And in the meantime, go out and make the world better. Thanks. Thanks.